Distoblicans of the World. I'm Raul Guerrero, and I welcome you to the Dystopian Republic. The late morning of December 13th, 2008 is where today's story will begin. Most of La Cordillera de l'Est was under the dome of a heat that kept temperatures 30 to 35 degrees above the northern hemispheric norm. Duplexes snaked up to, around, and down from the circular end of a quarter-mile-long street known for its predominant blue collar. In one such house's left half, preparations for Hull's birthday party were underway as he was playing pool with Jilson in the garage, having only the eight ball to pocket while she still had all her solids. She wondered how he was able to play like a professional wanting their next game to be more competitive. Hull said his skills were developed, not bred, and that he was in her shoes when he began his billiard class at Bromelia State University at Bromelia City. He couldn't count how many losses he had to suck up before finally winning, then called for the eight ball and left side pocket. Jilson thought about how suave Hull was in getting all his stripes out of the way and her difficulty in sinking even one of her solids. His shot was distracted by a doorbell ring, resulting in the cue ball missing its target completely and going into the back left corner pocket. Almost speechless, Jilson said that she guessed that she's the winner, embarrassing Hull into calling her rump lucky, waiting for them to get the door and let her in. Ray imagined the barbecue, juices, beer, candy, and desserts she's sure today's party will provide. She could hear Hull's immediate and extended family setting up the table and chairs, talking about how the birthday boy will look back on today again and again come its last second. Swindon text messaged Ray that she'll be at the party, but not a moment sooner than its start due to some last-minute stuff she had to get done. The Ponce in a rarity Madrid's and Garbe families had a bond that shared a black stinger knowledge of struggle early on and weren't on talking terms with an elite clique who knew them more than most. Cross-legging her sit on her princessy bed, Swindon stared into BS2's wanted poster of Bliss, Andrina, Marti, and Rocio. Her feeling of her heart being stepped on like a bug was as hot as the sweat soaking her skin and heating up her summer pajamas. Swindon still couldn't grasp how her email pal of three years could murder on a scale so horrible. Whenever she and Bliss traded messages, those exchanges were full of happiness and high on an optimism that smiled at the future. 
But on the night of November 17th, what began as another jovial back and forth got quite serious when bullying was brought up. For Swindon, her school's bullies were the kids of managers and supervisors, using that as their pretense to prey on the offspring of the workers. Bliss asked if those heathens targeted her and if they did, how far they went with the cruelty, pushing her pal to be as explicit as possible in explaining her exposure. Swindon admitted to being a heavy bag that the bullies love to punch on and yell at on a basis that was or more than daily. Having had nightmares and even a night terror that centered around that bullying, the hurt got to the point that her mother forced her into therapy. Swindon knew that getting that help was a godly blessing, believing that telling on the kids who've been picking on her would have resulted in more harm than good. Her therapist was one by day and a self-defense coach at night, starting their sessions in a quiet, bookish suite and ending them in an old boxing gym. Swindon got her help at the same time Hull, Jilson, and Ray got theirs, being how their years-long acquaintanceship tightened into a full-blown friendship. Her and her friends' issues with bullies were ongoing and showed no signs of slowing down, but their union made it manageable. Swindon wrote that haters won't ever not be on the hunt for victims, but the family and friendship will always be the mongooses emerging from the dead snake hole. She equated bullying to an endemic virus that'll remain a part of the world indefinitely, saying that as a scourge, it's ignorable and containable, but not eradicable. Swindon pleaded with Bliss to hold on to her parents, brother, and best friend as they'll never abandon, betray, or harm her. She reminded her pal that besides herself, the four she just mentioned will be her return points no matter what she does, where she goes, and how old she gets. Swindon asked Bliss if she understood her, had any questions, or would like to tell all about her exposure to bullying and how she tackled that scourge. She got worried when her pal didn't answer right away as it differed from the immediate and decisive ones she's received in the past. Bliss replied that she and Swindon will have to continue their bully conversation another time because her mom and dad were home. She and her pal knew that their parents would never approve of their relationship given how far apart they were class-wise. Swindon heard her parents pull into the driveway, wishing Bliss a good night, which wasn't met with any reply at all. Thinking little of it at the time, she sent her pal a sweet hello as the sun set on the 18th, but got no response. Swindon 
found that unusual as Bliss would always greet in kind or say that she can't talk right now because of her parents being around. Had the roles been reversed, she'd either reply with a hello or say that now wasn't a good time for them to chat. Swindon sent a forceful ask for Bliss to tell her sister what was up, but still received nothing but silence. Her last try at getting her pal to respond was a threat to end the friendship right then and there if she didn't say anything back. When even that didn't work, Swindon gave an effort to the effort and went to sleep in hopes that Bliss would beg for their bond not to end. All she'd get was a 19th that handed her more silence, but when she woke up on the 20th, she discovered that her pal had blocked her shortly after the sun rose. Swindon struggled to believe her relationship with Bliss was over, but was forced to believe that it was. She hid her grief and channeled it in a pummeling she handed to a queen bee who wanted nothing more than for her prey to know what having their life attempted on was like. Swindon's opponent declined to press charges as that would have meant admitting to her murderous intent and outing herself as the primary aggressor. Neither girl faced any legal repercussions for the fight but had to deal with the gross injuries they acquired. As of her stare at the poster, Swindon still had staples shutting her open cuts, bruises purpling her skin and couldn't drink due to the opioids she was prescribed to suppress the pain. The news about what Bliss did with Andrina, Marti, and Rocio made her wish she never met her pal to begin with. All Swindon wanted to do now was forget that chapter in her life ever happened, desiring to apologize to her friends for each time she met their asks to come out and hang with a firm nay. Her hope was that the more objectionable stuff she and Bliss shared to each other doesn't become nationally known. The deep breath Swindon took thanked God for the foresight to permanently delete every email she sent to Bliss and received from her. She was or had to have been definitely sure that her ex-pal expunged her account of anything that involved her. Quavering near mute, Swindon imagined how effed she'd be if her loved ones learned about the stuff she and Bliss did on image and letter, upsetting her into crumpling up and trashing the poster. Asked by Jilson if she's going to Hull's party or what via text, Swindon replied that she'll be over in a bit, staring at her present and the clothes she'll wear. She got dressed in fabrics perfect for a summer's day in the streets, then looked out her window as a number of vehicles rushed into the cul-de-sac and parked on various driveways. The Ponces, Inerarities, Madrizes, and Garbes, who had the day off, set up 
the party as those who had to work arranged to have their shifts end at or before noon. Neither cohort cared whether or not they were on the next day's schedule, having fought it all out well in advance of making their requests. Swindon was confident that her family and those of her friends knew how to have their fun and report for work on time and ready to grind. The 16th hour switched on Resentres and a backyard party that had no shortage of pulled pork, mac and cheese, soda, and beer, congratulating Hull for his life's latest step forward. Decorations lathered the tables, chairs, and their surroundings, leaving only an old wooden table for his presence. In the midst of the slurps, munches, and chatter, Jilson asked Swindon what or who held her up for so darn long. She understood that Ray couldn't sleep over last night, but that was because she had to work until closing time due to three people calling in sick. Jilson asked a defensively quiet Swindon what her excuse was, irking Hull into telling her to stop it. She told the birthday boy that he should be relaxing and not fretting, assuring him that her questioning was based on things that she's noticed but said nothing about until now. Swindon said she was sorry for all the times she's declined her friends' requests to hang as it made her out to be disinterested in social contact. Having not anticipated that, her friends and partygoers nearby gazed on with strong emotions that hid behind placid faces. The confession Swindon had to make uneased everyone around her into believing that they were about to be hit with something that'll alter their opinion of her. She admitted to spending an arm and a leg on a gift she's sure her mom will kick her butt for buying. Her mother Catherine walked over to her and asked what that gift was, scowling her down as if they've been down that road before. Two months ago, Swindon spent her week's allowance on a pint bottle of oatmeal stout, drank it in her room, and fell on her laughing rear end when she finished. Her drink meshed nicely with brownies, roasted peanuts, and chocolate milk, making for a delicious and pleasing listen to Resentres. Catherine didn't suspect anything until she saw her daughter be a tad unsteady on her feet and heard slurs and mumbles in her speech when she hugged and gave Swindon a big kiss on the cheek. She smelled alcohol in her breath and on her body. An angered Catherine planted her daughter feet first, stormed into her bedroom and searched through every square inch, finding the empty bottle in the closet and hidden by a dirty clothes pile. What happened was too painful for Swindon to remember in more ways than one, but her relentless mother pressed her to fess up and then repent. Catherine felt entitled to know whether her daughter learned a thing from that lesson she taught her 
frowning at the high likelihood that she has to reteach it because of the guilt it sickened her with afterwards. Swindon sternly told her mother that what she bought for Hull was something that'll thank him for his entry into her life. She promised that her present had not a drip or grain of alcohol or tobacco, calming Catherine somewhat but not enough for her smile to return. Swindon told Hull, Jilson, and Ray that all the times she's declined to hang out with them stemmed from her search for a token of their friendship they could all possess. She didn't want for something anyone could buy desiring heirlooms designed and crafted solely for her and her friends. Swindon explained how her long evenings on the computer were spent drawing that token and finding a business that would accept the order. Forgetting that her daughter had such benevolence in her, Catherine told her that she now understood and wished that she'd known about this sooner. Swindon wasn't sure if her mother was sincere in saying that or was comforting her into keeping her guard down. Before Hull, Jilson, or Ray could ask, she said that they'll see what that present is soon enough and gave her word that it'll be well worth the wait. Swindon yelled out in okay that was as abrupt as it was transitional, asking who was up for some soda pong. That got a chuckling grin out of Catherine, who was glad that her daughter was intent on staying dry, but some partygoers weren't convinced that they had been told the whole story. After an hour of soda pong, a Gregorio Jr. piñata was hung by rope at a height inches above the patio roof. The cartoon Bromelia's former dictator was reduced to had Hull laughing hard, amused Jilson so made Ray roll her eyes and turned Swindon's stomach. Among the other partygoers, an identical variety of reactions occurred due to the second thoughts some had over how evil Gregorio Jr. actually was. Propaganda from Gaiotel and Telezoro fed on the wickedness festering in the hearts of way too many Brumelians. It reminded the populace that no yellow jacket, black hornet, white dauber, or red wasp was spared of tragedy during the Civil War. That also went for anyone who resided or even happened to be in Brumelia, regardless of if they had a thing to do with the country, its politics, affairs, or history. For some, the events of late 1984 and early 1985 made them part of a timeline that blessed and or cursed their psyches and physiques. Up first, Hull took the confetti-wrapped wood bat and swung at the piñata as if it was a baseball glued to a chandelier. Everyone else sang a fun song that's become synonymous with the candy-filled game, clapping and stomping 
to the lyrics. Holds first six swings missed the piñatas. The next four only slightly dented it. And his last one did no damage. Handed the stick. Jilson's luck was no better. And her turn ended with Catherine almost getting her skull clobbered. Ray's history of cheating got her spun five times before she was allowed to start. But this didn't stop her from seriously denting up the piñata, forming a hole that leaked out two lollipops, three bubblegum balls, and a roll of mini gummies. This game used no blindfolds because the need for it wasn't there as the set and people operating it knew how to build and complicate. Swindon was up, and to the surprise of many, she handed Hull the stick and said that nature called, favoring her pelvis as she ran into the bathroom. She failed to find sufficient refuge from the hurting her friend gave to the piñata, hearing her fallen relatives beg her to help them and their savior. Swindon flushed the toilet and washed her hands and face, feeling that vision flow off of her and circle its way into the drain. After drying herself and while holding the towel she used, she peeked out the window and saw Hull thrust the stick into the region between the piñata's legs, drive it as far up as he could, and yanked it out, splitting it in two and turning the steady drizzle of candy into a single total spill. Partygoers across the age spectrum rushed for the pile to grab as much candy as their arms could carry from the break to the last treat picked up the time that elapsed was nine and a half seconds, giving almost everyone something but more to some than others. Swindon ran outside a minute later to see the late piñata be crumpled up like paper and stuffed into the recycling bin. Her mind was pressed in the middle of a relief that smiled over the game being over and sadness that mourned a role model's death. She hid both beliefs behind an indifference that had no problem with having just a goodie bag to snack on, appreciating each and every artificial flavor that aroused her mouth's nerve endings. Few partygoers were more suspicious of Swindon than before, even with the timing of her bathroom break in mind. Thanks to self-indulgence being the party's heir, its drink supply ran low quick enough to warrant a trip to the nearby Arikilo, a chain of gas station mini-marts native to Nefuala, but with locations all over Bromelia. Jilson, Ray, and Swindon volunteered to take up the task of buying the beverages, but Catherine insisted on going with and supervising them. Hull wanted to go also, but was told by many to stay, as he shouldn't be doing any work on his special day. 
watching Catherine lead his friends out. Nothing other than first partying and cake occurred to him. Then he asked if anyone wanted to play pin the needles under Ulrich Sr.'s elbows. An animated poster of Bromelia's former vice ruler was unrolled, revealing an image of him strapped to his death gurney. The remorse, shame, and fear Ulred Sr.'s face had not a skin pore of was sobering to most of the adult partygoers due to it being a caricature that robbed childhoods, corrupted adolescences, and ruined young adulthoods. The further Catherine was from the party, the more her nerves loosened, chilling tensions between her and Hull's friends enough to return them to talking terms. Swindon found calm in the heat that remained, treating it like her worries were sinking into the sidewalk. Catherine asked the girls if school's been pleasant to them, intending to help them out in whatever way she could if they wished. Jilson and Ray said that everything was alright and all good with tones that came out as forced, irresolute, and not the most sincere. Catherine asked if they really meant that because there were times where other kids would give her such answers even when tears were rolling down their cheeks. The help Swindon got inspired her to make a career out of helping others like her daughter, spending nights developing a school counselor's mind in the classroom and online. Catherine thanked the same university Hull went to for granting her the chance to prosper from her passion. Jilson, Ray, and Swindon reflected on their bond with each other and whole, concluding that it's impervious to sin and transgression. Walking onto Adekilo's premises, they and Catherine jolted at the $4.59, $4.69, and $4.79 that the chain was charging for a gallon of gas, agreeing that the prices bordered on extortion. Jilson commented that sticker shocks were to be expected in a downturn, especially with Romulo at the most powerful helm in Bromelia. Swindon hoped that the cash she, her mother, and friends had in hand was enough to buy them what they needed as Adikilo charged a $1 fee for payments made with a debit or credit card. Ray told her to save that hope for something more fruitful and not waste it on an entity only the rich, powerful, or well-connected could sway. Catherine was a third of the way across the gas station's front lot when she looked back and saw the girls standing by the price sign. Irritated and seeing her watch tick toward 6 o'clock, she told Jilson Ray and her dear Swindon to pick up the pace and that she didn't have all night. 
the girls ran to Catherine in time to follow her into the store, needing an adequate look at its general layout to know what must be purchased. Jillson grabbed a two-liter bottle of grapefruit soda. Ray got herself an 11-ounce bag of potato chips, and Swindon went for the six-pack of non-alcoholic beer. Catherine asked the cashier for an amaretto, sherry, and pack of menthol cigarettes, kicking in the effects of her first naloxone shot. Her desire to have that tobacco and nicotine fix was still there, but there was a noticeable reduction in her desperation to quench that want. Catherine swiped her debit card to finish her purchase and told the girls that hell will be shown to them if they so much as think about taking advantage of the sweet Nefoelis girl behind the counter. Telezoro preempted its 6 o'clock news broadcast for a special presentation titled From Hamilton with Hate. Catherine groaned a cringe that wanted to puke. Jilson jolted like the show hit her from behind and Ray's eyes froze and focused on the TV. Swindon's heart rhythm reached a tune that tightened her chest farther than a shoelace knot that only machine hands could undo. The store's atmosphere was relieved of its tension when the second manager turned off the TV and said that he's had far more than enough Bromelian TV for one lifetime. Catherine didn't need to say a word for the girls to be quick with checking out and following her out the store and back home. Everyone at the party was so glued to the presentation that it hit the pause button on the birthday they ought to be celebrating. By now, Hull's wondrous vanilla cake should have been taken out of the fridge, have candles stuck into it, and its wicks lit. Instead, his party became an afterthought to an ongoing crime story that left no Bromelian uninformed. Back from a commercial break, the program showed a home video of Mia smiling down at her lit candles as Malone led the singing of her happy birthday. Catherine and the girls returned in time to catch the other partygoers reacting with sympathy and sorrow. Mia, Sonia, and Nova shoulder-hugged their smiling snuggle to a barrage of photo flashes as Malone narrated that those three were inseparable. Catherine reacted with an O and a frick that got her told to hush and listen, aggravating her into asking those calling her out if they really bought that excreta. Her ask being ignored or sneered at, she planted her palms against her ears as she stomped inside, upsetting Swindon into doing the same as Jilson and Ray stayed and watched. Catherine urgently sat on the living room couch and lowered her head just 
inches shy of it, touching her thighs, her hair being moist, frizzy, and itchy from stress, mixing into a day's worth of sweat. Assuming that everyone outside was wondering what her problem was, her mind presumed that none of them had any clue how close to home the story hit her. Swindon entered the living room and saw her mother in an emotional low she hasn't seen her fall to since their last court appearance. She hesitated asking if Catherine was okay as it was obvious that she wasn't, but part of her needed to know what's causing the agony. Catherine felt her daughter's presence, told her that she knew of it and to sit with her so that she's morally a notch above that bliss girl she's been talking to. That struck Swindon louder and harder than the club a boy from Clemente shattered her knees with a year ago. Catherine said that her daughter heard her loud and clear calling the shock moving about in her veins at least mutual but likely greater. Swindon desired to explain her relationship with Bliss but couldn't form the needed sentences or deceit-free tone, making it easy for her mother to tell her that no lie will make what she uncovered any less truthful. Catherine uncovered her daughter's secret on accident, and it wasn't a find she foresaw or thought would be a possibility. She made sure Swindon knew that she wasn't suspicious of her friendship, coming close to praising her for hiding it so well for as long as she did. Catherine logged into her daughter's account as an administrator to give the computer a routine update when a ping dissolved that aim. Her curiosity made her double-click into SearchChirp, an up-and-coming search engine and email service based in Robopel. Catherine expected her daughter to run the site's usefulness into the ground with Hull, Jilson, and Ray in ways that were typical of teenagers looking to go off behind their parents' backs. But after perceiving a dozen or so emails, it became obvious that the bond Swindon and Bliss had mixed lust and depravity into one. Those images and letters those two traded haunted Catherine at night like phantoms staring into her soul, realizing that a noticeable portion of the content may well be in obscene or even illegal territory. Swindon couldn't believe her mother found out even though she deleted every remnant of her and Bliss's late friendship from existence. Catherine had known about the relationship for six weeks now and chose not to do anything about it as she couldn't stomach seeing her daughter face any legal repercussions. But as the days went by, the guilt in her grew and grew until it disturbed her sleep and made working like normal an uphill battle. Unable 
to take it anymore. Catherine called in sick and used that day to take screenshots of Bliss and Swindon's conversations and print each one of them out. The next day, she sat on the computer to check if anything new came up, but found that her daughter had deleted the content she now had in her hands as a stapled packet. Catherine decided to follow Swindon's lead and incinerate the printout in the fire pit she built in her backyard, but not without memorizing its every image and words. She said that the packet was now a papery char pile that blended in with the surrounding embers it wasn't much smaller than. Swindon tried being quiet with her sobbing, taking her mother back to the moment her tears dripped onto the dead friends she knew her whole life. Catherine sucked up her grief and assured her daughter that unlike her repulsive, unfaithful, and abhorrent excuse of a father, she won't abandon her. From the day her ex-husband screwed them over in court, she aspired to be his antithesis in every respect. Swindon's skin turned white when her mother hugged her real tight, told her that she wasn't going anywhere, and called herself the best mommy any kid could ever, ever, ever have. Catherine could feel the ashamed woe in her daughter subside even if her teary frown showed otherwise. She told Swindon to forget her friendship with Bliss, pretend that it never happened, and move on from it for her sanity. Right then and there, Catherine had an idea as far as what to give Hull for his birthday, and it involved herself her daughter, Ray, and Jilson. A gift so wonderful that no other will come remotely close to it. She wiped away Swindon's tears with her sweaty hands, smiling as exuberance returned by breaking through the timidity left behind by woefulness. Jilson let them know that the show was over and that the cake was out and ready to have a whole happy birthday be sung before it. Asked by Ray if they'd also like to sing along, Catherine and Swindon grinned at her with a togetherness that presented them as two of a tender-hearted kind. All the partygoers sang happy birthday to Hull, cheered and clapped afterwards, and had him think of a wish as he blew the candles. The chance for him to take a big ol' bite out of his cake culminated in Jilson, Ray and Swindon, smooshing it all to heck with his face. Two minutes of laughs and taunts preceded Hull directing everyone to the presents that have sat mostly untouched all party long. Jilson gifted him a $200 jeans jacket from Loicon Rinola that she got for the price of $30, omitting the detail 
that it's been hanging in the clearance section for over four months. Hull loved how easy it was on his eyes, but it was a warm-up to what Ray gave him, a canvas print of herself and him showing off the rolls of tickets they earned at Snake Eyes Pizza, both of which had more than double the paper needed to be receipt rolls. As both gifts made him smile, Swindon handed him her gift, called it a labor of friendship he'll never want to part with, and advised that it be worn as often as possible. Hull gave her his word that he'll do just that, opening it with great care and found that her gift was an emerald necklace, the weight of which exceeded its size. He fell in love with its spherical sheen, silvery assembly, and heavy authenticity, joking that it looks, feels, and weighs as if it was stolen from somewhere sacred. Of course, Hull wasn't serious about that, but did hear an ever-so-subtle rock-like clacking from in the centerpiece, intriguing him without arousing suspicion. Swindon pretended to find his joke funny when in reality there was no part of it that she found humorous as the website where she got her present from haunted her mind. Catherine told Hull to hold off on opening another gift as she'd like to announce hers right that second, promising that it'll be worth his while. Told to knock herself out, she made the announcement that for her, Christmas 2008 will be one to remember because she'll celebrate it in the wilderness and with him, Swindon, Jilson, and Ray. An adult being alone with four teenagers would raise eyebrows in some countries, but not in Bromelia, where such getaways were commonplace. Catherine firmly hugged Hull after being thanked for the gift, imagining the fairy tales her proposed holiday could realize. Members of the Ponce in a rarity Madrid's in Garbe families shuddered at the glee she, Hull, Jilson, Ray, and Swindon shared. Many hadn't reached adulthood when Bromelia was under Gregorio Jr.'s control and Catherine's present reminded them of their years on the hide from a fate that befell the plurality of those founded by his regime. Swindon was thankful that her mother brought whole something so remarkable, having stayed days with her at their palace in the wild. She recalled it being a kingdom where love was law and hate embodied the great evil it vowed to defeat at every appearance. Swindon was especially elated that Hull, Jilson, and Ray were going to experience her and Catherine's paradise for themselves. The trip was scheduled to begin on December 23rd at 7 o'clock a.m., 
go on past the 24th, climax on the 25th, and end at 7 o'clock p.m. on the 26th, making for a private vacation that'll turn out to not be unique. With the end of Hull's party now in sight, Catherine, Hull, Jilson, Ray, and Swindon's excitement for their trip began. Pictures of the most hidden square miles of Las Grandes Cascadas started enchanting their minds, but little did they know of the surprise their getaway was about to crash into head-on. And as fate would have it, that collision will force a sensation back into the spotlight right when its novelty was starting to wear off. And that was Image and Letter. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to the story I just gave. Share this show with everyone you know. Make sure they share it with everyone they know. Check out my website at www.rss.com slash podcasts slash the dystopian republic. Send me your respectful questions and constructive feedback at Raul Guerrero Jr. 95 at gmail.com. And lastly, support the show via my PayPal at paypal.com slash paypal me slash Raul Guerrero Jr. On that note, I'm Raul Guerrero and come again for another gripping, thoughtful, and sinister episode of the Dystopian Republic.